another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. And uh, today should be, it should be, as I'm going to say again, Friday, uh, January 8th, 2010. And the reason it should be, and I'm not sure, is because I'm pre-recording this show earlier in the week to uh, compensate for the fact that I'm going to be out of town uh, with uh, a little trip up to my bug out location with my wife just to get away from things and hopefully to do a photo shoot for our new ebook on uh, 22 rifle shooting. So it could get jostled around, but I anyways plan on uh, sledding this show on Friday again, the 8th of uh, 2010. So that should be the date. And with that, it should be episode... 352. Uh, yesterday you had Bill Mollison on, or not Bill Mollison, um, Bill Wilson on for Midwest Permaculture as an interview show. I hope that went well. Today we're going to do what we're going to loosely call a new tradition, Call In Friday. Um, I don't know that every Friday we're going to do a show that's about, um, that's all from call-ins from the audience, or even if we're going to do it every Friday, but I have a backlog right now, stretching back into August, at least, of calls from people that need to be played on the air and need to be answered, because I've made that commitment to you. Uh, most of the calls you're going to hear today are from October, November of 2009, to give you an idea of what kind of a backlog I have. So I have a lot to work with. I'm sure new calls will be coming in if I start doing this more as well. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to hear from the audience today answer questions, and that's great. Before we do that, though, Let's go ahead and knock out the housekeeping. First housekeeping item is always, let's make sure we take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you guys by supporting the show and providing you great service. Sponsor of the day, number one, Safe Castle Royal. Check these guys out. All right, These guys are so concerned with serving the market. I announced this about a week ago. I'm now serving on an advisory board with Safe Castle, along with quite a few other people, folks that you may know like Bobo Camp and Ron Hood. And our purpose in that advisory council is simply when they're looking at bringing on a new product or how they, they place something, basically help them serve the market better. That's how much they care about serving the marketplace. They've gone out and taken people like us and allowed us the privilege of consulting with them on things like that. So they really want to do a good job for you. Check out their offering. And remember, if you're an MSB member, you get their Buyers Club membership free. That's a $29 uh, value and uh, gives you huge discounts on just about everything in the Safe Castle store. Sponsor of the day, number two today, uh, the Berkey Guy with Berkey Light Water Filters at Directive21.com. Check out the Berkey Guy. you got to have clean water. I mentioned recently uh, a listener emailed me and told me what a great experience they had uh, when a product was out of stock and they called up the Berkey guy personally uh, to ask him what he, what he could do to uh, to make up for that product being out. And they really took good care of him. So check out the Berkey guy again, directive21.com. Remember, all our sponsors, right-hand margin of the survivalpodcast.com. And uh, if you're going to do any business in the survival preparedness industry, uh, give these guys a shot at your business first. That's all I ask since they... Uh, they put up and support this show for you guys. All right. Next, uh, typical things, man. Get involved with our forum. If you're not involved with our forum, I have one question for you. Why? Uh, you don't have to be active every day or posting every day, but there's a tremendous amount of information available to you there if you'll just go get it. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Check out the Survival Podcast Gear Shop. And last but not least, consider becoming a member support brigade member. You become a member of the MSP. You get over, it, it's now really over $200 worth of value on day one uh, if you take advantage of all the discounts that are available in the MSP. Uh, it's really a, a growing uh, consortium of discounts and special deals just for MSB members, along with special content just for you guys. 50 bucks a year. That works out to 20 cents an episode to support the show. And it's because of the MSB that I'm now doing this show full-time and making it even better for you guys. So thank you for the existing members. And consider joining. It's not just a way to support the show. It does give you an immediate return of investment. Now let's go ahead and let's go ahead and take the first call that we have today. I really like this call. Again, I apologize to everybody whose calls are going to be on today that this didn't happen sooner, but I said when I went full-time we were going to make a point to do things a little bit better and a little bit more personally. That's going to start right now, so let's take that first call. Hi, Jack. This is John in Salt Lake. I've got a question for you uh, regarding moving out to the country. Uh, my wife and I are uh, have always been um, 
happy with the idea of moving out to the country, either as a bug-out or a permanent living uh, place. But we have two concerns I wanted to get your input on. Uh, number one is um, I live in the city now, and uh, there seems to be a lot more jobs here than I would think there would be in the country. And if uh, we move out to a rural location, uh, our concern is how are we going to get an income um, to pay the bills, buy groceries, pay taxes. Even if we buy our land, we still got to have some some form of income. And I wanted to get your input on um, how uh, what, what kind of jobs are available out there, how to go about finding work in a location where there just aren't uh, very many people. Uh, the second concern we have is we have three small children, three young boys, and we've heard the stereotypes that go along with boys in the country um, being less for them to do when they get into trouble. I know they can get in trouble in the city. There's just a lot more resources here, um, entertainment, friends close by that are their age, school programs. And our concern is if we move to the country where there's just not a lot of kids their age, um, times aren't as simple as uh, I know you grew up, um, you know, running through the back hills with a gun, having fun and being safe. I don't know if they could do that these days or, uh, you know, what if that's the way we would want to bring up our boys. So what, what is the, that's our other concern is the, what do you do with kids out in the country? Um, we're new to this and pretty naive, so I'd appreciate any information. Thank you. Bye. Okay, that's a great question. It's really two great questions. So let me start with the easier one first, because the easier one is your job and your employment. And I, I want you to understand something. When I suggest things like moving to a rural area, moving out of the city, I'm not always talking about moving out into the middle of nowhere. Uh, a lot of times I'm talking about just taking a few steps back from what people typically do as far as urban living. So let's say I didn't want to move as far away from um, the Dallas-Fort Worth area as I'm going to when we move to uh, Arkansas. I might step back 100 miles. And there's places where if I move 100 miles away, I'm actually getting closer to another urban area, and that wouldn't be the way to go. But there are places where if I went 100 miles west... Um, I could be out kind of in the middle of West Texas. Uh, 100 miles east, there's some pretty remote areas. And there's even some areas that, let's say, 50 miles. So based on your skill set, your job, the capabilities of working from home, things like that, that's going to have an impact. And I'm not suggesting that you just leave behind a great career and go off and live in the middle of nowhere. I'm suggesting you evaluate the potential for doing that. And I'm not suggesting everybody leave the city. I'm reading one of Christopher Nurgis's, uh new books. Uh, actually, it's his older book, Extreme Simplicity. He talks about his decision to stay in the city because he thought he could have a greater impact on people, uh, teaching survivalism, preparedness, and self-sufficiency in the Los Angeles area than if he lived out in the middle of nowhere. I applaud him for that. I think it's good. So I'm not saying everybody should do it. I'm saying it's something that you may want to consider if it's in line with what you want out of life. So finding a job in the country is no different than finding a job in the city, except you're right. There's less of them to look for, and wages are generally lower. But I would also say there's a lot of people that kind of live out in the sticks at the 50-mile range of kind of a, a big city area, and they drive 50 miles to work and back every day. Even with me living in the city, just based on how dispersed Dallas-Fort Worth is, I've done it uh, up until now, every day of my life, for many years now, about that far of a commute. It's not out of the realm of possibility, and if my wife's family wasn't here we would have lived 50 miles the other side of where I was working in a more remote area from the very beginning. So remote is a relative term. So you have to find what you're comfortable with and what your skill sets allow you to do from a job standpoint. But what you might find is that a lot of people are in the impression that there's not a lot of good jobs out there in the country. Well, there's a lot of places where bigger companies are moving into smaller rural areas and they're kind of the only big dog in that area. And if you go 25 miles from there, you really are out in the country, so to speak. And you have less of the problems that come with living in the city. And in a lot of those places, there's not people with a lot of specialized training available. So if you really get targeted and look for companies that are uh, in a place where you can kind of do that dual life of living in, you know, living out of town but working in town, so to speak, there's a lot more opportunity there than you might think. And all I can tell you is to evaluate your skill set and see what companies have moved out into some of these areas. There's a tremendous, even in, in really kind of remote states 
where uh, where some bigger companies have moved to like South Dakota because of the tax advantages. Uh, Kansas is seeing a big uptick. So I, I'm not real fond of living in either one of those states personally. Too flat, too cold for me. Uh, but they do have some advantages, definite advantages. All right, so that's that's kind of one side of that. The other side of that same question, though, would be if you can develop a business of your own. Not everybody can do that. Not everybody's suited for it. Not everybody wants to. But it would be the easiest way to allow yourself the freedom to go and live wherever you choose. It's the pathway that I chose. Now, on the kids, I completely disagree with you. I absolutely, completely disagree with you with a caveat. As long as you move to an area with some level of community where there are children, your concern about them being alone goes away. So... I would not move into a rural area that's completely isolated and remote with children. I would move into a rural, strong community with good foundational underpinnings, and I would go there with children. It's very similar to the kind of area that we lived in in Pennsylvania. I was working in Philadelphia, Boston, you name it. We lived in a little place called Northampton, about 20 miles north of Allentown, Pennsylvania. It was way out in rural Pennsylvania. This is not my childhood. This is when I was working for Fluke Networks as a regional sales manager. My son grew up with great friends. He had better friends there than he had here and when one of those kids did anything it was either me on the phone to their parents my wife on the phone to their parents or their parents on the phone to us they were much better watched out in the country as far as what to do there's actually so much more to do again as long as you're living somewhere reachable to a relatively small town you got movies and malls and shopping and all that crap that we associate with the city but the freedom that's there now maybe you don't want to let your 14 year old kid run around with a 22 like I did I understand that I respect that it's probably the right decision but it doesn't mean they can't go fishing and just play and be kids Give kids woods to play in, and they'll figure out what to do with themselves. Now, will they get into trouble? Yes, and they're going to get into trouble anywhere. The difference is, in the country, they're more likely, if they get in, especially in those teenage years, into trouble with the law a little bit, to have an understanding county sheriff or deputy sheriff or township cop that doesn't necessarily haul them off to jail right away, that maybe brings them home to mom and dad for whatever waits them there, which might be worse than going to jail for a night. And helps guide them back into the right way of thinking. And i got to tell you, there was a Cass Township cop uh, named Jack Harley who could have took me to jail at least twice in my teenage years, and instead he brought me home. And uh, it's probably good that we weren't living in a city when I was, you know, just getting a little bit on the edge like boys do uh, in that 16-year age range. So I think the kids would be have more activities, more community, more involvement, better friends in a rural environment. Again, understanding rural and remote are relative terms. So you have to find what works best for you. And again, if you want to make a go of it in the suburbs or in an urban environment, no reason not to. You just have to live within the constraints. Remember, when I make a lifestyle advice to people and say, you know, get a place out of the, out of the city, that's if that's what you want. And that's a very important caveat to that. Let's take another question. That was a great one. Uh, hi, Jack. This is Casey, 98 from the North Country of New York. Um, thanks for all you do and a great show. Uh, my question was on a recent show. You said a pressure canner was a good piece of equipment to have, but don't buy some of the junk that you get at Walmart. I've never used a pressure canner, and I know that high price doesn't always mean high quality. What would you look for in a quality pressure canner? And conversely, what would you not want in a pressure canner? And do you have any recommendations of what you would like? Thanks for all your help. It's a great show. Okay, great question, and I agree with you. High price does not always equal quality. But high price is a relative term, just like remote is a relative term. And in this case, if you're going to ask me what pressure canner to buy, uh, without a doubt, I'm going to tell you uh, a pressure canner from All-American Pressure Canning. Um, they are the best I've seen. It's what my grandmother had. Um, it's uh, what a couple of my aunts had, and it's what we purchased when we made a decision to go ahead and get our own pressure canner because uh, I couldn't talk my dad out of my grandmother's. And here's what I want you I mean, a a 15-quart All-American pressure canner is going to run just under $200, around $190. Bucks. $180 bucks will get you about a 10-quart one, about $200 for a 21-quart one. Probably as big as, as most of you, of you need is a 21-quart. Is a um, 
You go up to like a 30-quart canner, you're looking at like 260 bucks. A 41-quart, which I think is the biggest one they make, is like 360 bucks. And I know these sound like big numbers. $200 when you can go buy what I call junk at Walmart for 50 bucks. Um, if you don't get a canner from All-American, here, here's the other part of that question. What do you look for and what do you not want? You do not want a rubber gasket. Um, the rubber gasket seal and you put the can together and you twist it sideways. To me, that's junk. And they're junk mainly because they're a pain in the ass and they have an additional point of failure being that gasket. If you look at an all-American canner, you'll see that it's a, it's a metal-to-metal seal, and you'll see these little screw-down, thumb screw-downs. That makes it very easy to make sure the canner is sealed. It makes it very safe. It makes it they're, they're built almost indestructibly. Now, let's say you're going to buy a 21-quart canner, which is probably, again, sufficient for the majority of home canning usage uh, on an ongoing basis. If you're going to do big batches, you want a bigger one. Let's call a 21-quart at $200. There's no reason that that canner shouldn't be around in 40 years and still working just as good as it was the day you bought it. You work that out and you prorate that over uh, 40 years, it's 5 bucks a year. If you leave it to your children and if they use it, it will last another 40 years. There's no reason it shouldn't last a hundred years because it's a quality built product. So that's why I recommend that brand. But above all, I recommend something with a metal to metal seal just because you're going to be happier, you're going to have less problems, you're going to have less issues, and you're going to mitigate that additional point of failure. I also really prefer instead of the ones that turn from the side, the ones that bolt down from the top just because they're easier to use and to me it's a more dependable, more efficient Design. So there you go. That's my best answer to that question. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack. Uh, my name's, uh, well, I'll be anonymous because it's a weird question. But anyway, I've got a question about, I bought a weapon from a friend about four years ago in California. Uh, filled out a bill of sale, exchanged cash for the weapon, uh, 40 cal, uh, Glock, beautiful piece of machinery. My question is, um, we didn't actually go to FFL or whatever, you know, go to a dealer and have it changed over to my name at the time, get my background done. What chance do I have, or maybe on one of your other listeners have, of going to a dealer now with the signed piece of paper and without the other party and attempting to get that weapon put into my name now? Or do I just need to turn this in for, uh, you know, guns for cash when the fascists in Los Angeles offer the next program? Love the show. Lots of info. Just keep doing it, man. It's great. Later. Okay, it's a good question. Let me answer it as a federal question first, not a California question. There's no federal law that requires you to do anything for the private sale of, of firearms from one individual to another. So in the state of Texas, where we don't have a laws like we do in California, if I wanted to sell my gun to my friend Tom, I could say, Tom, here is a Remington 870 shotgun I'll sell you for $200. And as long as I don't have any reason to believe that he's a felon or illegally should not be possessing a weapon, as long as I'm not making the transfer with uh, with knowledge that he should not have it. There's nothing illegal on my end. And there's nothing illegal on his end. He buys the weapon. It becomes his. There's no paperwork that needs to be done. I looked up the law on the California government website. The, the questions asked about private sell, it says you are required to go to an FFL dealer to enact that transaction. Now, I don't know California. I can read their law. But I don't know California procedure. When you buy a weapon in California, or more accurately, when this person who purchased it originally in California purchased it, is there additional paperwork done at the state level? If not, there's no paper trail, and it's a law, but it's a very difficult to enforce law, because how do they match that weapon back to the person that you purchased it from? I'm not advocating violating the law. I'm making a statement of fact. And I'm also making a statement that, uh, of where my knowledge is limited. I don't know, especially now versus at the time this weapon was purchased originally by the original owner, what additional paperwork the state of California requires from its dealers. If it is just the uh, the federal form, there would be no paper trail for the state of California to follow unless they went, you know, the, the weapon would have to, something would have to be done wrong with it and they'd have to go trace it down. So if that would be the case, if you wanted to go to a dealer and trade it in or sell it and upgrade it or whatever, you should be able to just sell it and make a statement basically that you legally came into possession of the weapon. I don't know that. You need to talk to a California state licensed lawyer uh, before you, you make any decisions like that. The simple solution, if the person you bought it from is still available, California requires that an FFL dealer 
charge only a $10 fee to do a private sale transfer. So 10 bucks, if you can still get in touch with this person, solves your problem. You go down to an FFL dealer together, as far as your, your paperwork is concerned, the transfer is taking place now. 10 bucks to the dealer, everything's copacetic with the state. And you're good to go. But this is an issue where I don't like to give legal advice, and this is not legal advice. It's just my observations, and you have to make your own decisions under your own state's laws because they they vary from state to state to state. All I can tell you is what I know about the law here in Texas. I can make that private sale, and there's no paperwork that needs to be done. There's no such thing as putting the weapon in your name. There's a notification of the transfer from the dealer to the public that is your initial form that everybody has to fill out everywhere. Additional paperwork is where the water starts to get murky in your additional state law. Your state law requires the transfer. So without that, you may have some kind of gray, murky areas. If you legally move to another state, not went there with the intent of this, you know, getting rid of the weapon, but if you were to actually move your residency to the state of Texas, I don't know how that's affected by California law. I don't really know how that's affected by Texas law, but I can tell you that once you were here, if you went to go trade that weapon in, let's say you went to go buy a different weapon, uh, you wouldn't have any problems. Again, don't know your law, don't know what it means to have a pistol in your name in the state of California. I imagine there is something to that process as Nazi-esque as California is. And my best advice I can give you, and this is the only piece of this advice rather than observation, contact the original seller if still possible. Go to an FFL. Give him his 10 bucks. Hell, throw 20 bucks to the guy you bought the gun from for his, for his trouble and get this legally taken care of. That would be the best piece of advice I can give you. I would not hand it in and wanted to round up the enemy guns or something like that because I don't see anything that's illegitimate about the transfer and the sale of this weapon. But again, you have to take your individual state's laws in any state into consideration before making decisions like this. Let's take another question. Hey, Jack, a few months ago you uh, mentioned getting deep-cycle batteries um, that were maybe a bit used and reconditioning them for some uh, low-scale alternative solar power battery banks. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, about the process of reconditioning batteries, uh, about um, how valuable that might be as opposed to buying new batteries. The reason I ask specifically is because I just ran across an amazing deal, uh, like six Trojan uh, 6-volt uh, deep cycle golf cart batteries for like 150 bucks, and these things uh, are at least $120 new a piece. But the only problem is these batteries are uh, about five years old. Um, they do keep a full charge currently, but I don't know how much life is left in them. And I'm wondering about reconditioning them. I've heard you can just put Epsom salts in, the, uh, in there to replace the fluid and then charge them back up and you get some more mileage out of them. But... Um, yeah, wondering if you could maybe do a little research and uh, enlighten us as uh, to your take on that. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Good question. And I guess my, my real statement with it is what do you have to lose by giving it a shot, especially when you get batteries that cheap? And it's something I've never personally done. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be uh, a little bit hedging with my advice here. I do have a battery sitting out in the uh, garage that may have sat around too long. I don't know if we can still recondition it or not, but I'm going to give it a shot with it uh, and see if it works, and I'll report back to you. But... Epsom salts pretty much is the answer, and I have a, a link to an e-how-to article uh, that I'll put in today's show notes to tell you exactly kind of step-by-step how to do that, to do that. but I'll summarize the how part, and then I'll give you kind of the why and the value part um, after that. Again, what you really need is um, Epsom salts, and one of the things that happens, though, the lead in the batteries uh, becomes sulfated eventually, and once that happens, uh, it gets to a point where it's beyond repair. So you can usually only do this a few times, but if you can do it a few times and get three to four years of life out of a battery that's supposed to be gone each time, and get maybe nine years out of a battery that you pay 10% of the value for, Epsom salts are pretty cheap. The thing is, you have to be uh, very careful. Sulfuric acid, which is what's in a battery, is extremely corrosive. It's one of the most powerful acids in the world, and you're going to have to make sure that you have a way to dispose of it properly as well. You need to wear uh, eye protection, hand protection. Make sure that you uh, wash your hands immediately if, or any part of your body you get this on. Really make sure rubber gloves and eye protection. And I'll tell you right now, wear clothes that you're not, ar- you're not afraid to get holes in because you're going to get some on your clothes even if you don't think you do and it's going to eat holes in your clothes. As a guy that spent a lot of time in the military working on vehicles, just from that I had plenty of t-shirts with little acid holes eaten in them. So that's something else to... Uh, to worry about. You do need to try to charge the battery 
and see if you can get at least 12 volts of output with a volt ohm meter out of it. If you can't get 12 volts out of it, it's probably maybe down to 10. Anything less than that, you might as well just forget about it. It's probably beyond repair. What you need to do is measure about 250 grams, which is 7, eight, seven to 8 ounces of Epsom salts, um, into about a half quart of water. And uh, heat that up to about 150 degrees to dissolve the Epsom salts in the water. You do not want to use tap water because it contains chemicals that will damage the battery. So you want to use, like, distilled water uh, for this. And, again, remember, if you boil water from your sink, it still has fluoride in it, which could be corrosive to the battery, even though the acid isn't. So think about what you're drinking there. But um, you, don't, you don't make your water ready for that by, uh, by boiling. So you want to get distilled water to do this with. So a quarter dis- uh, gallon of distilled water is pretty cheap. You need about a half a quart uh, per seven to eight ounces of Epsom salts. Dissolve that. Remove your battery cell caps and uh, remove the existing acid out of the battery. Drain it, uh, again, into a, uh, a safe container and arrange for proper disposal of it. If you have a sealed battery, you're going to have to find what are called the shadow plugs, which are pretty easy to locate. They cover the openings of the battery cell. You'll need to drill a hole through these and drain the fluid out of them and use a plastic funnel to pour enough of the Epsom salt solution to fill each cell of the battery properly. Insert the plastic plugs uh, back in, or you might have to make some sort of a plug for uh, one that's sealed that's considered maintenance-free, which means can't be reconditioned. That's why they did that in the first place. So you have to make some kind of a cap. Then once you do that, you want to shake the uh, battery to make sure that the salt solution is well distributed. Recharge the battery on a slow charge for about 24 hours, and it should function properly. It's probably a good idea to charge it, uh, to run it down and charge it over uh, a two to three day period. So run some power off of it until it kind of weakens, charge it back up, do that three to four times uh, as part of the reconditioning process. And uh, at that point, you should have a battery that is going to work pretty well for you. Now, that can be done with a car battery to extend its life, and that can be done with batteries that you get dirt cheap to build solar banks and solar arrays. Why is this important, I guess, is more of a question than how do you do it, because anybody can look that up online. It's important because if we ever get into a shit-hit-the-fan scenario, somebody asked about this recently, how are we going to take, you know, we have these solar arrays, well, how are we going to handle it when the batteries go bad? Well, there's going to be batteries all over the place if we have that bad of a shit at the fan. But knowing how to extend their life is going to be extremely important while society puts itself back together. If you're just in a remote location and you're trying to live on less money, it's another way to save money. So it's an extremely valuable skill set. And I think there's a lot of money in it for people that learn how to do it well, just going out and getting a hold of batteries that people are going to generally throw away, reconditioning them, selling them on a secondary marketplace. I think there's a big market for that as well. That might be a good business to go into in a rural area, just saying. Um, in fact, a few little mechanic shops, and you could probably just go around and say, look, every time you get an old battery, you charge a disposal fee. I'll tell you what, you let me come by once a week, I'll check them out, the ones that are suitable for reconditioning. I'll take them home, reconditioning, charge you X amount per battery, and you sell them back as reconditioned batteries to your marketplace. Small, privately owned individual places, probably a great place to do that. So in any event, great question. I think it's a skill that everybody should have. My big question, and maybe somebody from the audience can help me with this, uh, what do you do to get rid of the old acid? I, I, I'm not really sure what I would do with it. I guess um, if I, I just I don't really have any ideas at all. It's extremely dangerous. It's extremely corrosive. It's extremely toxic. It's not something I want to put into a jug and stick into a garbage bag that the garbage people are going to take away. How the hell do you get rid of that stuff, especially if someone was going to go into a small-time commercial operation? What is the proper way to dispose of uh, that compound? And does it have any use, or is it now just a toxin that's going to exist forever? How can it be um, taken care of, so to speak, or can it, be, can it itself be reconditioned? I really don't know. And it bothers me um, when I think about how much of it must be out there from years and years and years of, of battery use. So... Uh, if anybody can help with that, please post a comment, and let's go ahead and take another question. Hi, Jack. I'm really enjoying the series you're doing on medicinal plants. Uh, one question, though. Um, some of them you, you recommend actually going with a store-bought extract, for instance, ginkgo biloba, uh, as opposed to just harvesting uh, the material from the tree itself. Um, I wonder if you could do a little bit of instruction uh, for, say, the shaded defense near where we don't have the, the local herb shop to go down to. How does one harvest an extract uh, from from the tree itself 
Um, just a thought. Again, thanks very much. Enjoy the series. Bye-bye. That's another great question. Let me talk about that twofold. Let's start out with the first concern of why I recommend something like, let's say, Ginkgo Biloba going with a store-bought extract. Because the reason I do that is not because you can't do an extract of Ginkgo. It's because Ginkgo doesn't have much of a therapeutic effect done with a standard uh, extract of uh, that's done with herbal substances, which I'll describe to you in just a second. There's a very few specific components of ginkgo that's been proven to have the therapeutic effect of you know additional memory retention and better uh, circulation and mental function, um, and it is actually quite small and an individual leaf or an individual nut. It's very difficult to build up enough of that substance in a, in a pure extract that you would do with traditional te- um, herbal technology to make it function well. So most of the ones that you've heard in my, uh, my, my medicinal plant series and you will hear in the future from medicinal plant series that say for this effect or in general to use a store-bought extract, the other option's not really very viable. Now, maybe you can make an extract of that, and you'll get certain therapeutic effects, but for the specific area that I've recommended, you're not going to get much of a therapeutic result just because you can't isolate and get a sufficient quantity of the component required. All right. Now, this is not always the case. It's actually the exception rather than the rule. In most instances, I believe you're better off using the whole herb, either as an extraction or a tincture or a tea or consuming it, than you are using an isolated compound. But in some instances, it's that isolated compound alone that has the desired therapeutic effect. Ginkgo is one of them. So if you're concerned, if you use ginkgo, if you get a good effect from it, if you want to continue to have that effect, it's something to put into your storage because you're never going to be able to make that type of an extract. Now, a simple herbal extract is one of the easiest things in the world to make. It can be done with vinegar. It can be done with water. It can be done with grain alcohol. There's, uh, it can be done purely with water. There's a variety of ways to do it. They all involve basically macerating the herb, which is basically using something like a mortar and pestle and smashing the herb up. And it may be a dried herb. It may be a fresh herb. Certain things will actually work better fresh. Some will work dry. I can't go into individual examples because it would be too long to answer this question. But basically, you you smash the herb up and you place it into the liquid that you you desire to make an extraction with. If you use alcohol, it usually takes longer because you're able to do a greater amount of extraction, a more powerful extraction, and then you have the advantage that it's highly preserved and it will last longer. Water extraction, you'll generally get as much extraction as you're going to get relatively quickly, and then you can go ahead and, and bottle the extraction uh, for safekeeping and for use later on. The, uh, the best way to do that is with a dark-colored bottle, protected from light, label the extraction, its components, and the date it was produced. So exactly how much dandelion root or dandelion root and leaf or whatever is in there, when was it prepared, and what's its potency, and what was the date of its, its preparation, and put that away and then use it as needed. But it should be kept away from light. That will preserve its, its effectiveness uh, for a longer period of time. So it's a basic extraction. But again, when you hear me make those recommendations for certain products, for certain herbs, it's generally, with ginkgo, it's pretty much, ginkgo has very little therapeutic effect for anything, just uses a whole herb. Um, with certain things like chamomile uh, or, or lemon balm, there are additional therapeutic effects that can be uh, done with a, a pharmaceutical-grade extraction, but they still have a great deal of therapeutic effect for other things with a common extraction that any herbalist can make. So, Herbal medicine and herbal care is a deep topic. We'll go more and more into it as I expand that series. Uh, we're going to actually end it with a whole show on how to actually use different herbs with different examples, how to make a tincture. How to, And I have Dr. Kyle Christensen working on a new product from his company that's going to help with that as well. So we'll be doing more and more on that. But understand, again, the reason I make the recommendation is with some, some herbs – it's, it's simply not possible to get a therapeutic effect with a whole herb extraction. And with most others, it's really simple to do. Hi, Jack. Uh, Stoneman85 here. Um, question regarding um, the uh, 
oxygen absorbers that I've heard you talk about for preserving food and things. Um, I, when I ordered a pack, it was like a pack of a hundred, and I didn't know what to do with a hundred of them. So what I'm wondering is, how can um, you order, you know, a pack of those oxygen absorbers? Use part of them, and what do you do? Can you? Is there any way to keep the rest of them? Uh, can you put them in a jars or something to do to? to essentially seal them back up. Um, just wondering, I can't seem to find anything about that. So uh, thanks for the show. Uh, take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, that's another good question, and it's a uh, conundrum a lot of us, I think, end up with when we're using O2 absorbers. I, I think you can probably find some suppliers that will sell you maybe a pack of 25 versus a pack of 100, and that may help the issue to a degree. But But here's the reality. The second you open up that sealed package... Uh, the O2 absorbers begin to do their job and absorb oxygen. That doesn't mean they're ruined because obviously you have to open it. You have to take the O2 absorber out. You have to take it and put it into its packaging. You then seal that packaging. And then if you do like, let's say, mylar, and you push most of the air out and then you seal it, low-tech way to do it is seal it with an iron. Um, and you're going to maybe bag that and put it into a five-gallon bucket. The next day, when you look at that bag, you'll notice that it almost looks like it was vacuum-sealed as the oxygen you couldn't push out was sucked up and absorbed into that O2 absorber. So to just initially being exposed at all doesn't immediately render them useless. So this is the way that I would recommend that you use them. So if you have a, uh, a vacuum sealer, Get your vacuum sealer ready to go. Get all of the places that you're going to use them ready to go. Open up your O2 uh, packaging. Put as many or as few O2 absorbers in each one of your component parts as you feel you're going to need. Toss them into the bucket. Immediately reseal that package. Now, some of them come in a bag, and if you have a certain type of vac sealer, you can vac seal them right in there. Maybe you need to use a special type of bag for your vacuum sealer. You might have to take them out, put them in, so get that bag ready, and immediately re-vacuum seal them. If you do that, of course, they've taken up some oxygen, but they'll still be serviceable. You'll still be able to use them again. And then go ahead and seal off all your mylar or your jars or whatever you're putting them in. Don't put them into a jar because there's a tremendous amount of oxygen in that jar. And, of course, they're going to suck all of that up. Now, it's going to be kind of equally dispersed among them, so they'll still be somewhat effective. But for maximum retention of their effectiveness, immediately revacuum seal them. Also start looking for places where you can buy them in smaller quantities per pack. I have seen them at uh, quantities of about 25. I believe that several of our sponsors, uh, Safe Castle and also Ready Made Resources, sell them in smaller packages. So look there to that. But again, the thing you have to do is immediately remove them from an oxygen environment uh, to preserve their effic- efficacy uh, long term. So there you go. Best one. I, best I can give you on that one. Uh, Seal them quick and buy smaller quantities if you can find them. Hey, Jack, Jason. I live out in the Grand Canyon. Love your show. I was just listening to an episode, an old episode of the Handgun Podcast, and he brought up a really interesting point I wonder if you could maybe touch upon for us. In our bug-out bags, or if you're lucky enough to have one a bug-out location, what amount and what type of cleaning equipment do we need for our firearms? Uh, not for, uh, you know, for planking people, but if we're out there hunting squirrels in a real, uh, you know, S hit the fan situation, what do you recommend we keep as a minimalist pack for a three day trip? And what do you recommend we keep at a location if we're, if we do have one for a uh, long term to keep our weapons clean and keep them functional? Again, love the show. Keep going. Look forward to January when you're every day. It's another great question, and it's one that's, I, I think it has a lot of subjectivity to it. It's really up to you. Um, how much you put into this, it's it's not as high a priority to me as making sure that you're going to eat and have fire, uh, but it is a priority. And I'll, I'll give you first kind of the first part, you know, your, your go bag or your, your, your bug out bag or what have you or your range bag, how much do you keep to make sure that you can take care of your, your rifle, your handguns when you're out in the field or caught away from home and you might need it in a survival situation to make sure it's dependable? Um, let me say I don't keep my weapons as clean as I did in the military. I think the military uh, really overcleaned weapons, and it's due to some of the inherent issues uh, with the reliability of the M16 platform uh, that I was shooting at the time. Um, when I go out into, uh, when I go to the range, when I do anything, I keep a basic gun cleaning kit, uh, which consists of a, a rod, 
uh, a, a, a screw together cleaning rod, a good size pack of patches, a bottle of solvent, and a bottle of gun oil, and a oil soaked lint free rag kept in a Ziploc bag. And uh, it's very infrequently that I have to put oil on that rag. And it's also something I keep at home with my gun collection. It's something that I keep as part of my gun maintenance storage at my bug out location, which we'll get into in a second. The oil-soaked rag goes back to being a kid in Pennsylvania. And as I was even too young to take the guns out uh, without very close supervision and maybe even too small to even shoot most of them well because I just didn't have the frame for it yet. One of the things that I got to do, and this was a privilege for me, I love this, was to make sure that all the guns were wiped down uh, and never got rusty. So we had a jelly jar with this lint-free rag in it, and we, we kept it, you know, not saturated, but, but moistened with gun oil. And I, I found that it was very infrequent that that rag seemed to need any additional oil to do a good job of wiping the weapons down. So I would go in there every few weeks and just take out all the guns and look at them and, and learn the actions and things like that and wipe them down. And obviously the ammunition was stored separately and there were adults in the house when I was doing this. But that was kind of how I came up. So I'm a big believer for exterior uh, protection of your weapons. Uh, just simply a, a light coating of oil does everything that you need. For my bug out location, I keep six cans of a product called Birchwood Casey Gun Scrubber because I believe it is the absolute best thing that you can get when you really need to strip down and clean out a gun and get everything off it. It does require you to then make sure you coat things with oil that need to be coated with oil again because it strips everything, but it is the best. And I have six cans of that, and I keep that as a minimum at my bug out location. I keep a few cans of it in the house here, and in my range bag, I keep a can of it because you never know when you're going to need to get gunk out of something, and it's the best thing I know of for that. Um, I also keep a full gallon of what's called CLP, which you can buy from a lot of military supply stores, which is the lubricant, cleaner, and preventative that the U.S. military has its soldiers use on their web. You can get that in a gallon. It's pretty expensive. Uh, Not expensive, pretty inexpensive to do that. And you won't need any for a very long time if you pick up a gallon of it, Uh, unless you're running your own gun range or something like that. I mean, that is a ton. And then I have little bottles that I fill up, and I use that as my gun oil. When I say I have gun oil in my kit, I can refill. And I actually have Hops Number 9 oil with a a piece of tape over it, so I know that I filled it up with with CLP instead of Hops Number 9 gun oil. I'm a big believer in having some powder solvents around, not a tremendous amount. Of course, you want brushes and patches for all of the calibers that you use and swags and things like that. But for the bug out location, it really comes down to a bunch of patches and rags, a set of rods, a set of all the brushes and swags and everything that you need, uh, six cans of Birchwood Casey gun scrubber, and a gallon of CLP. And people say, well, what if you run out of that? If I run out of a gallon of CLP, folks, we've had a really bad problem, and I'll probably be extracting oil from plants or using a little bit of my cooking oil for lubrication at that point. And understand that about guns. I'm not recommending you go out and start coating your guns with PAM tomorrow, but if your choice between a gun is to leave it dry or to coat it with a little bit of cooking oil, oil's oil, and it will prevent rust. So I'll leave it at that. So good question. Those are my thoughts on that. I think it's a highly overlooked area. I'm glad you brought it up. It's something I've always done, but I've never really talked about. So thanks for the question. Let's take another question and keep moving on. Hey, Jack. How you doing? This is Robert calling from New Mexico. Spooky One on the forum and Moxie 450 on the channel. I have a question concerning a ATF tax stamp. Um, let's say you have a short barrel rifle and you get your tax stamp. That's great. Everything went perfect. But I've heard that that now invites the ATF into your home and they can check out not only your SBR but any other gun you have. Is that true? And if it is true, I mean, has there ever been a documented, you know, uh, I guess the event, the ATF came to someone's house and, like, took their rifle, or what do they do when they go to your house, if that is true? Let me know. Thanks. Let me say, good question. I also think it's one of the biggest myths out there about um, legality, so I think most of the people spreading it around really don't know what they're talking about. I'll also tell you that it's a myth that's taken me in, and at one time I was under that impression myself that that was indeed the case, and it was one of my reasonings for never getting a Class 3 weapon. Now, this is the best answer I can give you with all the research I've done on it to try to clear up this issue. 
I'm not guaranteeing the accuracy of this, as in most cases I reserve the right to be wrong. But in all my research, this is how I understand things to be. When you purchase any Class 3 item, be it a short barrel rifle, a suppressor, a fully automatic weapon, anything like that, you pay the transfer tax and get the stamp, it doesn't give anybody any right to do anything other than what they already have the right to do anyway is the person who has purchased the weapon. If the ATF or any other law enforcement organization wants to come into your home and search for anything, they have to go through the same processes that they would have to for any other reason that they would want to search for your home. The simple possession of the weapon does not give them any additional uh, ability to uh, to go around your inherent constitutionally protected right against illegal search and seizure. Period. End of story. All myth. Not true. Never happened. I've heard several stories of it supposedly happening. Every time I followed up on them, it's either been the person was a dealer of the weapons, a Class 3 dealer, uh, or they say, oh, they had no reason to go. It turns out the guy was running a meth lab or something, and the warrant wasn't because the guy had a Class 3 weapon. The warrant was because the guy was running a meth lab or what have you. I have not ever heard a documented case ever of a successful uh, circumvention of the right against illegal circum- uh, search and seizure simply because the person owns a Class 3 weapon legally. Ever. Period. I do believe that you could be able to gain a search warrant with probable cause because of the belief that the the person was in possession of that weapon and should not be due to other illegal activities like running a meth lab. So I think a judge would be quicker to cut the warrant uh, because we have suspicion this guy's involved in drug activity and he has a Class 3 weapon, and that's a matter of public record now. Okay, So I think that might make it easier to get the, the, the warrant, but you're still going to have to go through the process and prove probable cause. Uh, I've also heard of things like the guy's house was on fire because his meth lab exploded and emergency responders uh, noticed that it was a meth lab that caused the fire, and then the guy's busted not just for the meth lab, but for possessing an automatic weapon and being involved in illegal act, uh, you know, uh, using it for illegal purposes, uh, even if it might have been originally legally acquired. I, I don't believe this is true in any way, shape, or form. If you are a dealer, and not just a Class 3 dealer, any dealer, the ATF at any time can come to you and ask to examine your records and ask to see any weapon in those records that is listed in the records as being in inventory. If it was sold, you have to have paperwork that explains how it was sold. This is even the case, you won't be selling this way, but with a, a, a Curo and Rec, Relics license, uh, which I'm waiting on mine now, uh, if you have a CNR license, you're required to keep records of every weapon you purchase with it, and the ATF could come in and let's see your paperwork. Okay, and you say you have these weapons and you have not yet sold them. Now, you can't sell them with a CNR license, but you could, let's say, sell them to a dealer uh, or, or, or something like that. You could transfer them to with a, with a recognized FFL or something like that. So you'd have to make make notation of that and where it went. That is a paperwork examination to ensure compliance with a license. Okay, that is not circumvention of your right against illegal search and seizure. Why? Because you apply to the government for a license to deal firearms, and as the issuing body of the license, they have a right, nay, a duty to ensure compliance with the requirements for that license. So those are two totally different worlds. But as the purchaser, as far as I can see, you've abjucated nothing. As the dealer... As a condition of having the license, you are subject to inspection of the paperwork and any weapons claimed to be in inventory. You are not subject to further search. In other words, just because you are, let's say you have a uh, Curo and Relics license, the ATF can come, check your paperwork, say, show us your inventory, but they can't go, what's in that room over there? We want to go look in there without a warrant. That's nonsense as well. There's a lot of bullshit in this world, and I think it's important if you really have a question, phone the AT up and ask them. I found them to actually be pretty cooperative with things like that. I've never found them to be like, why are you asking or anything? And I've never really found them to be rude. I found the people that deal with this stuff on a daily basis get questions like this all the time, and they're actually one of the more competent government organizations that I've ever had on the phone. Um, 
I'm not saying that the way that firearms are regulated is constitutional. I don't believe that it is. I believe that there should be uh, a much easier process for the sale of firearms. I, I like the old days when a person that was, you know, a legal citizen uh, that wasn't a felon could just order uh, a shotgun from Sears in the mail. I don't think that was a problem. I wish we could go back to that America. I know that we're not going to. And when I say things like the ATF has the right to come out and inspect, I'm not saying that it should be that way. I'm saying that's the way that it is. Just so any of you guys that are super, super Super libertarians that want to prove you're a bigger libertarian than me. I don't want to hear from you on this issue because I'm not saying that's the way it should be. I'm saying that's the way that it is. So if you want a short-barreled rifle, if you want a suppressor, if you want a fully automatic weapon, I'm sure you have your reasons. If you're legally allowed to do it and you have the money and you can find somebody that legally can sell it to you and you can find what you're looking for, go buy it without any fear of being on any additional uh, restriction of liberties from everything that I can see. If someone is an attorney or if someone has factual information to prove me wrong, please let me know. If you have hearsay or because you say so or because somebody else says so, I'm not going to give you the time of day with a rebuttal on this. But if there's fact to prove me wrong, please do. I want to know and I want to make my listeners aware of it. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hello, Jack. My name is Bill. I'm calling from Melbourne, Florida. I have the opportunity through the Cub Scouts organization to be a den leader, and uh, I really would love to help introduce, use that form to introduce um, some uh, lifelong skill type of ideas, uh, such as survival stuff, uh, so I'd, I'd wonder if you had any suggestions on teaching some of the topics you talk about uh, to young people uh, in a fun way, uh, using a, a, like a fire steel or uh, even a, a simple magnifying glass for starting a fire. Uh, any, any of the, those topics that I was wondering if you might have some insights on sharing that info with young people, young boys, first graders, uh, in, a, in a way that... Uh, might make an impression on them or, or uh, help uh, foster a love of, of gaining self-confidence and, and understanding more outdoorsmanship and survival-type topics. Love to hear your comments on that. Thank you so much. Okay, that's a very cool question. And let me say that if you're dealing with kids in Cub Scouts, you're already kind of past the power curve a little bit because they're kids with an interest in things like that. That's why they're in Cub Scouts. Um, with some exceptions, I found that a lot of children in Scouts, especially in Cub Scouts and Weeblos, tend to be uh, children of uh, single mothers, and they're looking to find a way to bring a male influence into that child's life because the male influence that should be there either is not or is a bad influence. So with that exception, most of the kids in Scouting kind of have that interest anyway, so it's going to be easy. And most little boys, I find... It's really easy to stir these things up because they're about being human in the first place. So let's start out with the fire starting one. How do you do that? Get some good fire starting equipment. Do a class on starting fires. You ain't going to have, there's no such thing as a first, first grade boy. You're going to show them how to make fires. Not going to be interested. But now we have to expand on that lesson. Let's start talking about what we can do with fire. So maybe what we do is we have everybody come up with a list, a little list of all the things that fire can do for us. And we sit in front of the group of boys and we write up on a little whiteboard or a big pad or something like that all the things that people say. And when somebody says the same thing, I'm sure cook food will be one that's done a lot. We put a little check mark next to it. So we see how many people said cook food, how many people said keep us warm. And then as the instructors start enlightening to the additional things that fire can do for us, like purifying water. All right. So it's a matter of just actually doing the things rather than just talking about them that will get kids interested. They want the cool part. If you give them the cool part, then you can give them the lesson behind it. I think that it's a great opportunity to talk to children about growing their own food and talk to them about planting a tree that will produce food for a long time and maybe doing a project like that. Any of your camping experiences are a good way to it. But if you want to expand it and you want to get into the, like, the core things that we talk about, 
think about how you can take the things that every Boy Scout troop does or every Cub Scout troop does and expand it to teach additional lessons. Let's take camping, for instance. We're going to go camping, right? We're going to do a one-night camp out. That's typical for Cub Scouts. They they really don't have the tolerance for a lot more. So it's generally at a state park that's not very far away. But we're going to need food. So maybe in advance of the camp out, we say, here's what we're going to do. Everybody start bringing some food in for the camp out. It all needs to be stuff that doesn't need to go in a refrigerator or a cooler so that we're, it's able to survive out in the woods. We're going to be out in the woods. Now, it's only down the street at the little state park or little state campground or whatever, but to them, it's out in the woods, right? That's part of the wonder of being a kid. So you start having them bring it all together, and as they start to put it together, we need enough food for everybody for one full day out camping. And once we get all the food together at the den leader's house, and you make it easier on them, I'm going to put the food together, I'm going to put it in a big tub, I'm going to bring it out there, and we're all going to share. We're going to have a collective uh, environment for food. Say, hey, guys, do you think we could maybe get stuck out there for an extra day? Maybe we should have enough food for two days. And start to introduce them to the fact that what you think is enough might not be enough. And having a little extra is still good. But see, since we're sharing it, it's not about being stingy or hoarding or crazy or selfish. It's about making sure there's enough for everybody. So that would be a good way to introduce that. And then maybe after the camping trip, the extra food that you guys stored up, how about talking about building community and taking the extra food from the camping trip that didn't get used because you were prepared for two days and you only went for one, and you can, A, have them take it home and make it part of home food storage, or B, take the whole troop down together with the box of food and give it to a food pantry, which might be the better one for that lesson right there. There's just so much you can do with this. You just have to be creative with the things that you're doing. Let's take another example. I think one of the best things you can do, if there's any kind of... Uh, of a, a garden center that's available around. I mean, like, the I, I can't think of what they call it. I want to say Arboreum. Uh, a place where, like, the government, uh, your city or your state or whatever, has, like, a, a gardens that can be examined. Uh, botanical gardens is what I was looking for. There's the Fort Worth Botanical Gardens here. Amazing place. Take them to places like that. Learn about native plants. T- teach them the foods that they can gather from the wild. Um all of these things are things that young boys are going to have an interest in. It's really, again, it's only limited by your imagination. Teaching some primitive weapon skills? Come on, there's not a kid around that doesn't pick up a rock and immediately throw it. Teach them that that actually in the right hands is a way of gathering food. How can we make that rock go further and more accurate? Can we build slings? Things like that. Can we build slingshots? What are the limitations of us? You gotta put safety into all this and where it gets used and where it doesn't get used. But that's how you teach anything that could be dangerous to anybody is there's a right way and a right place for this and there's a wrong way and a wrong place and those two paths shall never cross or you won't be allowed to do this anymore. There, there, there's a tremendous uh, I mean, what are some other things I can think of you could do? You know, scouts are always big on doing community service type things, like, you know, taking food to old, old people and all, and that's great. But what if you could get in touch with your city or your town and say, is there any public land uh, that you would allow us to plant some trees on? And that's all you really ask. Can we plant some trees? And they'll, and they'll probably say, well, what kind of trees? Go, We're not sure yet. Can you tell us what we can't plant? It's much easier if you, because what they're going to say is we don't want any invasive species, or here's a list of things you can't plant, and just say they will all be acquired from a local nursery, which will help a lot. But then it just so happens that those plants end up being things like apples, uh, maybe some blackberries, or some other things like that. Find some public land that will allow you to do this, and take your scout troop out there, plant, and the beauty of this is it'll have to be cared for. It'll need at least a good year of care to make sure that it gets enough water to establish itself, and then say, look, now here's what we've done for the community. We've improved the community, we've planted, we're helping to reforest an area, what have you, but there's also food there now, and now you know where it is. Or can you find you know, somebody who has a lawn that's just desolate, there's just a big back empty yard, and say, hey, our troop does fundraisers, and we'll come around and we'll plant a couple trees in your yard. The only caveat is you make sure you water and you take care of the tree. The boys can come back and see the trees later and how it's growing. Uh, and then we get to pick what kind of tree goes in your yard. And we're going to put, plant something that grows food. You'd be surprised how many people would be like, oh, my God, you're going to give me a free fruit tree? 
come on over and do it. You could actually spread permaculture and growing your own fruit through your entire neighborhood using your Cub Scouts as a way to do that with a little bit of a fundraiser. And if you want to plant, you know, a tree or two every other week, it's not a lot of money that you guys would have to raise. So there's there's so many things you can do. Just let creativity be your guide. And as far as getting the kids interested in it, if you let them take action rather than just sit in a circle and hear you talk about it, you're not going to have any trouble whatsoever. And I think I'll wrap up today there. I think that was a great question. And I think that's a great way to start living a better life, So make sure you're involving kids. Uh, if you want more advice on teaching kids something, uh, I'll link to a show that I did a long time ago about kids and gardening in today's show notes, in addition to the other things I'll link to. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler, it really doesn't matter cause it all gets spent.